Wednesday, July 19 edition of the BFTPM podcast. We're just five days away from the return of BFT Live, but we will finish out the week, ultimately going 24 for 25 on weekdays that we didn't have PFT Live, but we did have PFTPM podcast. Macy is out there barking. I apologize in advance if any of her noises make their way into this broadcast, although some of you would prefer to hear from her instead of me. Then again, why are you listening? Why are you watching if you don't want to hear from me? You're going to hear from me over the course of the next, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes. Every time that I provide an estimate on the low end, I inevitably go for at least an hour. So off we go. And off we go in New York, where the Jets are the first team to open training camp. We've seen the tweets of the arrivals. We've seen the the Lucille bat from The Walking Dead making an appearance, possibly intended to go upside the head of one or more members of the Hard Knocks crew. That would make for some compelling content for HBO. Maybe they should not frown upon that type of assault. I'm kidding. But one thing I'm not kidding about is Hard Knocks lost its luster a long time ago. The preseason Hard Knocks, I'm sorry, I don't care about it. I'm not interested in it. Now, I am this year because of the angle that the Jets don't want to do it, and they've got Aaron Rodgers, and how much Aaron Rodgers will we see? How cooperative will the Jets be? Will the producers lean into the tension that will be there? They should. They should. And I still wonder whether or not Liv Schreiber is going to show up with all these strikes in Hollywood. I don't know how the picket line works for something like this. Will he narrate it or will it be someone else? That's a minor point, but still, it's just another reason to be interested. I'm more interested this year than I usually am because of this angle of the Jets not wanting to do it. They may have found something here by accident that reinvigorates the brand a little bit because it's it's just not interesting to me. Every year, it's basically the same thing with some differences based on the names, the places. You get some difference in stories, but you kind of get the idea of what it's going to be, don't you? And how much of that stuff that's happening in real time do we already get through the army of media that is covering teams, including teams with their own in-house media. It's all out there. It's all in the open. That's why quarterback is so much better. And NFL Films, I think, has gotten itself into something very good with quarterback. We had an item yesterday about how Peyton Manning told Pat McAfee last week it's already been greenlit for a second season. And I thought, you know, I probably could have written something about that a few weeks ago because someone told me as I was trying to figure out who's going to do hard knocks, that the NFL is currently trying to figure out who'll do preseason hard knocks, regular season hard knocks, and who will be the quarterbacks for the next season of quarterback. So it's one of those things where I just assumed there was going to be a next season, even before it debuted. This seems to be something they want to do. And given that it's still the number one show on Netflix, yeah, it's definitely something they're going to do. And it's definitely something that I'm going to watch and look forward to, unlike hard knocks. I think there was a time I looked forward to Hard Knocks. I can't really remember. But this year, the only reason to look forward to it is because the Jets don't want to do it and because they have Aaron Rodgers. We'll see how it looks when it gets started in just a few weeks. And again, the Jets get started today. And in just two weeks, we'll be in Canton because the Jets and the Browns are playing in the Hall of Fame game, which will be televised by NBC. So it's back. It's happening. And we're going to get into the groove before you know it. We're seven weeks away from the start of the regular season. It's happening. Off we go. Summertime is great. And I'm never one of the folks who will count down the days until the season starts because I'm a firm believer in enjoying every day of your life while you can. Don't wish your life away. Football will be here when it's time for football. Enjoy June. Enjoy July. Enjoy August. And then enjoy football season. September, October, November, December, usually but for the holidays, not great times of year. The days get shorter. The weather turns nasty if you live in an area like I do here, relative northeast, mid-south, whatever you want to call it. We have all four seasons. I just remember it being a dreary time and football being that oasis in a dreary time of the year where every week you're looking forward to something more. And now we got Mondays, we got Thursdays, we got Sundays, we got plenty of NFL intrigue, and it is all getting started now. One very intriguing issue i touched on this yesterday the things colin coward said about 
the Rams being frustrated with Matthew Stafford because he wouldn't redo his contract. And I'm going to assume that it wasn't a simple restructuring. It was the Rams wanting Matthew Stafford to give up some of that $57 million in full guarantees that vested on March the 17th. Kevin Demoff, the COO of the Los Angeles Rams, who was well-documented as being one of the people not telling the truth when the Rams were secretly plotting their move from St. Louis to LA. And look, look, this isn't necessarily a knock on Demoff. They all lie when they have to. They all lie when they need to. He just got caught. He got caught because St. Louis filed suit and was persistent and the league wasn't able to suck the case into the secret rig kangaroo court of arbitration. So we found some stuff out. And one of the things we found out is Kevin Devoff had a problem with the truth when it came to what the plans of the Rams were. And once Stan Kroenke bought that property in Inglewood and everyone said, including Roger Goodell, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, plenty to see here. So when it comes to Matthew Stafford and the Rams and what they were thinking about doing for 2023, they're going to do the same old nothing to see here bullcrap. Football is family, nothing to see here. The two primary bullcrap mottos of the National Football League. So Demoff appearing on the 11 Personnel podcast did admit that teams reached out for casual conversations, air quotes, casual conversations about the possibility of trading for Matthew Stafford. Said Demoff on the 11 Personnel podcast, those conversations frustrated me because I think it's trying to inject narratives that aren't there. I know there are reports that we tried to trade Matthew. We were not actively trying to trade Matthew. I know Les Snead, GM of the Rams, has rebuffed that before. It's just not the case. I think if you wanted to be in the reality of the NFL, there are 10 teams this year at least that are going to have different quarterbacks. We were obviously aggressive in remaking our roster in March. It would be naive to think that people didn't inquire about what was going to happen with the player who the year before won the Super Bowl. It's different than whether people inquire whether there are casual conversations. Okay. If Matthew Stafford is untouchable, if he's Patrick Mahomes, you're not even going to have a casual conversation. You're hanging up the phone. You're not even going to listen. It sounds like the Rams were willing to listen. And look, the Rams understand where they are. They know who they are right now. They know that they wrote some checks to win a Super Bowl and they won it. Their problem was after winning the Super Bowl, they gave out too much money intoxicated still literally and figuratively by the aftermath of the Super Bowl when it was Don Julio for everyone. Remember at the parade, Matthew Stafford was walking around with a big old Don Julio 1942 bottle. They paid him more than they should have. They gave him a contract with 120 million that became fully guaranteed after one year. It was 63 million fully guaranteed at signing. 57 million, it became fully guaranteed March of 2023, March 17, to be precise, 4 p.m. Eastern on March 17, to be even more precise. Would they have loved to have been able to unload that contract? Hell yes, but they weren't. And the thing that Demoff said that really caused me to, to say BS, and here's his quote. The part that frustrated me was this notion that we were trying to get away from the 59 million and that was the only way to do it through trade. That tells you that you didn't have an understanding of the situation. Matthew's dollars after 2022 were unguaranteed. We could have walked away this year free and clear for nothing, no future money owed. So there was no need to restructure. If we wanted out of Matthew's deal, we could have just walked away. We didn't have to trade him to relieve the 58 and a half million. We could have just walked away. To me, that's where there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what his deal was that drives the narrative, oh, we were desperately trying to get rid of that bullcrap, Kevin, bullcrap. Sorry, all due respect, bullcrap. You weren't going to walk away from Matthew Stafford's contract after one year. Two years after giving up all that stuff to get it, you weren't going to walk away with nothing. That doesn't look good. That looks horrible to the casual fans you're trying to court in LA. It looks bad for the organization. It looks like you screwed up. They, they could have 
well, they couldn't have walked away from Jared Goff, but they specifically targeted a replacement for Jared Goff in Matthew Stafford, where they could tuck Goff into the trade package and not make it obvious they were giving up a first-round pick to get rid of Jared Goff's contract. They were very concerned about appearances. It's L.A. It's Hollywood, for crying out loud. And it would have been a horrible appearance if the Rams would have, after the 2023 season, just ripped up the contract of Matthew Stafford. Now, it's not entirely accurate that they would have walked away with no commitment because he did have $1.5 fully guaranteed for this year. And I don't know whether or not they did an offset in there. They've got a habit of having no offset language. So they would have owed him maybe $1.5 That's nothing. So it's, it's essentially zero in comparison to the $57 million that became fully guaranteed on March 17th. This idea that they would have considered seriously tearing up the contract, that is baloney, folks. Don't buy that for a second. If you don't believe me, listen to the folks in St. Louis who got lied to by Demo. They weren't going to tear up the contract and walk away from Matthew Stafford. They weren't going to do that. Now, look, if you trade him or if you cut him, you're looking at some significant cap charges. If they would have traded him before June 1, it would have been like a $50 million cap charge, dead money. The Falcons did it with $40 million with Matt Ryan in 2022. The Rams were looking at $50 million in dead money, but it would have gotten them away from $57 million in full guarantees. You know, they're looking at $31 million next year, fully guaranteed. That's one of the things that happened this year. There was a roster bonus, major roster bonus this year that they owe him. And $31 million fully guaranteed in salary next year that they owe him because he was on the roster as of March 17th. So the idea that there was no need to restructure, well, yeah, there was. If Colin Coward reported, and I have no reason to doubt this, that the Rams wanted him to maybe take less, and he said no, first of all, why should he say yes? And second of all, why shouldn't they be frustrated when a guy who is an old 35, who can't stay healthy, and that's not his fault. He gets banged around. He keeps his mouth shut. He keeps playing through it. We saw during the quarterback series what these guys have to do to be able to line up and play week in and week out. It is a tough, brutal, physical sport, even with all the protections that quarterbacks have. So do I think the Rams would have loved to have found an escape hatch from the Matthew Stafford contract? Hell yes. And nothing Kevin Demoff says changes my mind. If anything, it makes me feel more strongly. It makes me think he doth protest too much. You don't have casual conversations about a franchise quarterback. You hang up the phone. They were looking for a possible path out of the Matthew Stafford contract. I believe that. And I believe that they were hoping the Jets wouldn't get Aaron Rodgers and that the Jets would call and that they could convince Stafford to go along with it. I don't remember whether or not his contract has a no trade clause, but as I've said before, for franchise quarterbacks, it doesn't matter. If he doesn't want to be with that new team, that new team's not going to trade for him. They need the guy who is the key player on the roster to be all in. You don't want some reluctant participant who's doing the bare minimum as your quarterback. So I call BS on everything Kevin Demos said. And, and look, think about what's coming here. The last thing they need as they enter 2023 is this nagging sense that they'd love to move on from Matthew Stafford. They're in the mode now where... We got to make chicken salad out of whatever we have. We got to make the best out of this season, whatever it may be. We got to sell. We got to attract attention. We got to do the best we can in a bad situation, born of the fact that they won a Super Bowl. But this idea, it's laughable that they would have walked away from Matthew Stafford and torn up the contract two years after giving up two first round picks, a third round pick, and Jared Goff to get him although we know one of the first-round picks was tucked in there to unload the golf contract. But if we look at it the way the Rams want us to look at it, oh, that, that we wanted Stafford so bad we gave up two ones, a three, and Goff to get him, all the more reason to not get rid of him after two years. And then one year after winning a Super Bowl, one year after getting drunk on Don Julio and giving him $120 million fully guaranteed as a practical matter, $63 million fully guaranteed with the $57 million kicking in, do you really think they would have cut a guy one year after giving him $63 million in full guarantee. Do you really think they were going to cut him? Do you really think that? Anyway. Look, I don't want to pick on Kevin Demoff. We know they all lie when they have to. They all lie when they need to. But when we catch someone in a lie, I like to make a big deal out of it because I, I hold out this hope 
that the people who just kind of naively believe everything that a team says, we have no intent to trade Percy Harvin. We have no intent to trade Russell Wilson. We have no intent to trade this guy who we're going to trade tomorrow. When people say these things before they're proven to not be true. And I try to say, Hey folks, that may not be true. I get shouted down. Oh, how, how, how dare you deny what that person is saying? Why would you not believe what they're saying? Because they all lie when they have to. They all lie when they need to. It's part of the strategy of football. It's an outgrowth of the deception that happens on the field. I've said this time and again. You're rewarded for successfully deceiving your opponent during the game. The, the draw play. You're trying to make them think it's a pass. Oh, no, it's a run. The play action pass, trying to make him think it's a run. Oh, no, it's a pass. The zone blitz. Oh, that guy's dropping into coverage. That guy's coming. Oh, we thought he was going to blitz. He didn't blitz. Oh, we thought that guy was going to drop into coverage. He blitzed. Every trick play you've ever seen. It's a product of trying to fool, deceive, lie to the opponent. And that mindset trickles over. There's that military approach. Got to keep all of our secrets. Got to misdirect. You're not going to tell anybody who you're thinking about drafting. You don't want anyone to know what your plans are for free agency. That, that's part of it. So I think that that keeps people from really having a clear line as to when and where you should just tell the truth. And I think for something like this, there's no reason for Kevin Demos to tell the truth. And I think the truth is they would have loved for someone to make them an offer they could have accepted and sold to the world as a reasonable a reasonable alternative to keeping Matthew Stafford around because most average fans would have said, why in the hell are you getting rid of the guy that just won a Super Bowl for you? Why are you getting rid of a guy you gave up all that stuff for two years ago? Why are you getting rid of a guy you just gave 63 million to for one season? 63 million for one season is what he would have gotten if they would have cut him, especially if there's no offset language in his contract. That's something I'm making a mental note. Let's see if I can remember. You know what? Instead of that, bear with me while I make a, a, a literal note to myself, Stafford offset language. I'm going to try to get my hands on his contract and see if it's in there. That makes it even more ridiculous that they would have cut him after one year because they would have owed him the full $63 million for one year if there is no offset language in his contract. All right, let's move on to the Chiefs. A couple of things on Kansas City that have my attention. We were told last week by Jeff Darlington of ESPN that the Chiefs are optimistic Chris Jones will sign a new contract and be there for training camp. Now, head coach Andy Reid, not so sure about that. Not sure that he's going to be there. This, to me, is the test case as to whether or not the Jedi mind trick that they have managed to play on Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey is going to work on Chris Jones. And I've said all along it shouldn't. I don't think it should work on any of them. I think you got to get paid what you can when you can. And Chiefs fans get mad at me because they would prefer that their guys be happy with less than their worth. Be happy with less than your worth so we can go get all these other players and they'll take less than their worth and we have a great team. And isn't that great? Well, the other 31 teams don't do it that way. That's how you rig it in your favor. You manage to get all these guys who are content to win in lieu of getting paid. They take less. You have more money to go get better players. You leverage the fact that the Travis Kelsey's and the Patrick Mahomes of the world take less than their worth. So who do you think you are? They're taking less. You should take less. We'll see if it works with Chris Jones. Chris Jones has fewer years to play. Chris Jones is nearly as valuable to that team as Patrick Mahomes is. Because without Jones, they don't get to Super Bowl 57, and they don't win Super Bowl 54. I'm on record with that. I'm not going to get into the details, but I'm convinced of that. They need Chris Jones. They needed him in the past. They need him in the future. And they need him, ideally, to not say, I want Aaron Donald money. Forget about this churning of 22 and a half to 23 and a half million dollar contracts. Forget about that. I'm not interested in that. I want Aaron Donald money. I'm as impactful as Aaron Donald. I only have a few more years left to get paid accordingly. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because they need Chris Jones. Will he have the Mahomes and Kelsey mindset or will he say, nope, and, and I look at it this way. If he was going to have the Mahomes and Kelsey mindset, he already would have taken the deal. Tyreek Hill didn't have that mindset. What did they do? They traded him. Good luck trading Chris Jones. Who are you going to replace Chris Jones with? Because Tyreek Hill was just a piece of a passing game that was run by Patrick Mahomes. Chris Jones is the heart and soul of that defense. 
you can't say, well, all right, we're, we're losing Chris Jones. We'll, we'll replace him with a bunch of other guys. No, no. Not the dominance that he's able to flash in key moments. He steps up in those key moments and gets it done. If he's gone, you're screwed until you find the next Chris Jones. Patrick Mahomes talking about his ankle. This kind of caught my ear because, like, he injured the ankle in January. And if you watch quarterback, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Came back and played basically on one leg. And we had the quarterback rankings. I think that people were doing tongue-in-cheek, but kind of seriously. Best quarterback in the NFL is Patrick Mahomes on two legs. Number two is Patrick Mahomes on one leg. Number three is everybody else. He said that he's in a good spot with the ankle. He's in a good spot. Well, I'd like to think he's in a good spot six months later. I'd like to think that he's 100%. If he's not, holy crap. Is this something that's going to linger into 2023? Is this something that's going to get re-injured at some point? And then he's going to have to finish the year playing on one leg? Now, it worked out fine. <laughs> Better than fine last year. But the idea that he would have that hover over him the entire season. And it accumulates. And maybe it does get to a point where, despite his admirable stubbornness, he's just not able to play. Something to keep an eye on. Because I think right now, when he's asked about the ankle, the ideal response should be, what do you mean? It's good as new. It's been six months. I'm fine. I mean, it's not an issue. Ask me about something that's an issue. It's in a good spot is the kind of thing that you say when you're concerned about it, but you're trying to put on the best possible face yeah it's in a good spot yeah it's in a good spot it's fine it's a good spot this is fine this is fine the cartoon dog says as the house around him burns and i i'm not suggesting it's that severe but it sounds like it's not 100 percent. it sounds like it's not fully healed it sounds like it's something to keep an eye on every time he starts moving his body into a cluster of opposing bodies that may pull him down and awkwardly land on him or he awkwardly lands on the ground that ankle gets caught under his body someone else's body just something to keep an eye on chiefs would love to be the first team to repeat since the 2003 2004 patriots and i think they've got the ability to do it they got to get chris jones happy and under contract and they got to get well he is under contract but you know what i mean and they got to make sure that mahomes stays healthy or finds a way to keep playing with one leg the way that he did in the balance of the divisional round game against the Jaguars, the AFC championship against the Bengals, and then the Super Bowl win over the Eagles. Last item before we get to questions today. We're up to number three on the top 10 coaches for 2023. And let me review very quickly. If I can remember, it's getting harder each day because there's one more that I have to remember. Number 10 was Doug Peterson of the Jaguars. Number nine, Mike Vrabel of the Titans. Number eight, Kyle Shanahan of the 49ers. Number seven, Sean McVay of the Rams. Number six, Sean Payton of the Broncos. Five, Pete Carroll of the Seahawks. Four, John Harbaugh of the Ravens. There are three left. And I'll tell you who they are in no particular order. Mike Tomlin, Andy Reid, and Bill Belichick. Those are the last three. Apologies to anyone who was omitted. Number three is Bill Belichick. I know that may sound sacrilegious, but it's where we are right now. Bill Belichick's the one who had the bright idea to use the Frankenstein monster approach at offense last year with a coordinator who didn't even have the title, who has been a defensive guy his entire career in Matt Patricia, and to have a quarterback's coach in Joe Judge. It was remedial offense it was an embarrassment Robert Kraft the owner of the team has essentially acknowledged he hasn't used language like that but he knows it was a disaster we know it was a disaster and I remember last year one of the few times I was right with foresight I said if anybody else was trying to pull this other than Bill Belichick we would be saying has this person lost his mind so I don't know has Bill Belichick lost his fastball was his fastball Tom Brady we had that item not that long ago, and I talked about it in this space, Andy Reid versus Bill Belichick, who's the greatest of all time. Andy Reid has compiled his wins with a bunch of different quarterbacks, and now he's settled into the guy who may be the greatest to ever play the game. Belichick did all of his work at a high level with Tom Brady. Since Brady, two seasons, no playoff appearances. 
since Brady, one playoff appearance, 47 to 17 loss. Since his last playoff victory, his last postseason win, Super Bowl 53, Bill Belichick has not won a postseason game. Andy Reid has won two Super Bowls and appeared in another one. So Belichick, and look, there should be no shame in being number three. But if we'd have done this list a couple of years ago, Belichick's number one, without question, greatest coach of all time in any sport. That's what we thought. And that pivot point of Brady leaving, what does it mean for him? What does it mean for Belichick? Well, Brady won a Super Bowl. And Brady got to the division round the next year, the wild card round the next year. Belichick's one for three with no playoff wins. So he's sinking a little bit. And, you know, I've been saying ever since Robert Kraft said what he said at the league meetings in Arizona, when he was asked, and I'm paraphrasing, but the question was, can Bill Belichick survive another non-playoff season or will he stay with the team until he catches Don Shula for the all-time wins record? And Robert Kraft said, not, are you kidding me? Forget about it. Like casual conversations for trading Matthew Stafford. Forget about it. We don't talk about that. We're not doing it. He didn't say, forget about it. Bill Belichick's here as long as he wants to be. Bill Belichick definitely will be here to catch Don Shula. He said, well, we want all of our players to get statistics, but we care about winning. Well, the statistic here is winning. But the message from Robert Kraft was and is, we're not going to keep him around to get these wins if the losses are going to outweigh the wins and we're not going to get to the playoffs and we're not going to have a chance to get Super Bowl number seven. We have to be successful. We have to be competitive. And I think that he enters this year on the hot seat. Now, what would it take to get him fired? At a minimum, no playoff appearance. Now, if they get to the playoffs and go one and done, it could be that there's something that happens behind the scenes that causes the relationship to fall apart. Maybe Robert Kraft makes some demands that Bill Belichick doesn't want to comply with, and they just decide to go their separate ways. If they don't get to the playoffs, that to me is the first step. Then how many games do they win? How embarrassing is it? Do they finish in fourth place in the division for the first time? Since Bill Belichick's first season with the team in 2000, second longest streak in the league right now, 22 years of not finishing in last place. If they get left in the dust of the AFC East, that'd be a factor, wouldn't it? Anyway, he's still number three. That leaves Tomlin and Reed at number one and number two. And you'll find out tomorrow who number one is because I'll tell you who number two is. And, and look, I still think Belichick is one of the great coaches of all time. And he just keeps going and he just keeps going. But it may be that he ends up going somewhere else. And that, to me, is the great question. Beyond how much time six Super Bowl wins buys someone when it starts to go the other way, what's the shelf life for being non-competitive post-Brady, post-Super Bowls? How long can you go? Beyond that, if Belichick would be fired or if they would come up with something and you know Robert Kraft maybe wouldn't fire him but he'd give him a chance to resign or it would be we've decided after all these years it's in everyone's best interest to start again I mean it would be sold in a way that wouldn't be so jarring as Robert Kraft fires Bill Belichick I'm convinced of that where would Belichick go what would he do next I say this about Tomlin I said it about Vrabel and I think it applies to several other coaches right now if that person somehow would get fired, other teams would hire him immediately. There'd be teams that have a head coach they're currently happy with that would say, mm, mm, mm. we'd be even happier with this other guy who became available that we did, didn't expect to become available. So I don't know what would happen with Belichick. There's been a thought that at some point he would end up in one of those elevated executive VP of football operations roles like Bill Parcells, Mike Holmgren, Tom Coughlin. I think what we've learned about that is that football coaches can never stop being football coaches. So you've got to have a very secure, patient head coach in your building who will work with a coach emeritus who has some other title, but who is still a football coach and who has been a damn good football coach and is dealing with the fact that he's no longer a football coach. So he's no longer as relevant as he was. So one way to stay relevant is to micromanage your head coach and to be the coach of the coach and to tell the coach how to coach. And that doesn't work for anybody. So would Belichick do that? I've heard that he'd like, and I don't, I don't know that this is accurate. I just know that this is the talk that makes its way around the grapevine. 
get a position like that with a little, little slice of equity in the team. Maybe easier said than done, both as it relates to setting it up and as to making it work. But I can't imagine him not coaching. Can't imagine it. And there are plenty of teams out there that could do a lot worse. But I think what you need to have is an owner who's willing to just throw the keys to Bill Belichick for a few years, too. You got to give him time to get his systems to where they need to be. And one thing that we've learned, he needs a good quarterback. You need a Tom Brady or someone like that. It, it maybe was Brady. I don't want to give him too much credit, but look at all those close games they were in in the postseason. And it's just Brady's will to win. Brady's life force that would take over and he'd make it happen. I remember way back in Super Bowl 36 when the Rams tied it up. The Patriots got it back with some time left in regulation and John Madden accurately observing that maybe the safe thing to do, the smart thing to do, the right thing to do is just play for overtime. He didn't know that Tom Brady was capable of coming out in a situation like that and taking the team down the field and getting them in field goal range, but he thrived on those moments. Helps a coach win. Helps a coach end up being regarded as pretty damn good if you have a guy like that around. So number three, again, nothing to be ashamed of, but not what we've come to expect from Bill Belichick. And I guess the question is by next year, if we do this list again next year, will he be higher? Will he be lower? Or will he still be at number three? All right, questions time. Let's see what we got here today. PFTPM Posse always is early in the stack because I follow the account. I'm not playing favorites. It's just the first one I see. With rule changes and the explosion of passing in the NFL, we've been watching offensive production and records just get blown away, but we haven't seen sacks, interceptions, et cetera, go crazy. Shouldn't they be going up overall too, if only because the number of opportunities are so much higher, or is it the rules? It has a lot to do with the rules. It has a lot to do with the rules. When you protect quarterbacks the way you do, you're going to have fewer sacks. When pass rushers are hypersensitive to the possibility of the roughing the passer, or as Sims calls it, nothing the passer flag, that makes a difference. When offensive linemen are getting away, not just with holding, which at times is blatant, they're not calling holding, and Sims Theory and I agree with him on this. The defensive linemen collectively are so much better than the offensive linemen right now. They're evening it out to keep the quarterbacks upright, to keep the game moving, to keep the balls in the air, to keep the chains heading down the field and the points coming up on the board. So you get some holding that happens that doesn't get called. And the thing that we really saw happen a lot last year, and I'm interested to see if it occurs this year, and we'll have our rules meeting with the NFL coming up in a couple of weeks. And I wonder, I wonder if I uh, will remember to ask, what are we doing about left tackles and right tackles who get into their pass block sets a half second early? We're going to call that. We see it all the time. We see it all the time. That's another way to give the offensive line an edge when it comes to protecting the quarterback. So that's why sacks aren't dramatically up and interceptions aren't dramatically up. And look, we, we know that, and, and this comes and goes, this emphasis on contact with the receiver as he's trying to get open, but quarterbacks are getting better. There's a lot of good quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are more protected than ever. And the rules are protecting them and the unofficial non-enforcement of penalties like false start and holding on the offense are helping as well. Another one from PFTPM Posse. I'm loving father of mine, but I'm disappointed because I only have about 50 pages left and I don't want it to end. Well, PFTPM Posse, good news is this, a sequel is coming. I don't know when though. See, what, I've, what I'm doing is, because I originally wrote father of mine entirely in the third person narration perspective. And I got to the point year, year and a half ago where I just didn't like it. And I read another book called The Lincoln Highway that uses the technique of telling the story in not just first-person narration start to finish, but first-person from different characters. So I rewrote Father of Mine by using first-person from different characters, piecing it together that way. There is some third-person in there to bridge some of the gaps. 
So what I've got to do with the sequel to Father of Mine, I've got to go back and rewrite the whole thing with that same approach. And I've got about four chapters in to the rewrite. There's over 100 chapters in all because they're short. The problem is I'm working on another manuscript. I'm writing a Western. And what I write is what I enjoy reading. So I like Westerns. So I'll, I'll, I'll write one. What the hell? I didn't live in the Old West, but who the hell lived in the Old West that ever wrote a Western? How many people out there wrote a Western that actually lived in the Old West? So it's it's shaped by our expectations and what we've seen in movies and read in books. And that just kind of gets into your head. And from that comes a story that either works or it doesn't. So I kind of want to get that done, at least the first draft done before I go back and rewrite Father of Mine. So I'd say loosely, loosely thinking about timelines, it'll probably be, probably be March of 25 that son of mine, the sequel to father of mine ends up being available. So uh, I hope you can wait that long, PFTP and Posse. And I like the fact that you're upset that you only have 50 pages left and you don't want it to end. That's one of the things that I love and don't like about a book that I enjoy reading. I don't want it to end. And then once it ends, I got to go find another book that gives me that same experience. And it's kind of like kissing frogs. Like I'll try this book. It's like, I oh, really didn't do it. Do I finish it? Do I find another one? And then when you find that one that you love, you want to read it all in one sitting, but you also want to spread it out over two weeks because you want that experience of having something to look forward to. I want to read the next chapter. I want to see what happens next. I'm engrossed in the story. So I'll take that as a good sign. Also, one other question about that. What was the inspiration for the clown shoes Vinny always wears? I, you just try to come up with things to make characters a little bit different. You don't want to be stereotypical. You don't want to be cliche. And you just try to find something that that just distinguishes them. Vinny's got the big giant feet with the clown shoes. And he's got the hole in his nose from uh, when he had cancer or something. But uh, most of the people who are around him are smart enough not to ask about it because Vinny is a fairly dark and sinister figure. Okay. PFTPM Posse, as you mentioned yesterday, can we make PFTPM a weekly thing, especially since many of the questions spark articles, video clips, and other productive conversations? Maybe. I'll just leave it at that. Maybe. Because once my routine pivots back to PFT Live every day, I kind of value my productive time for the rest of the day to write stories. I do a bunch of radio. I try to get my workout in and to carve out another half hour to an hour when I've already devoted two hours to PFT live is not the easiest thing to do. Recliner QB. I think that's also PFTP and posse. How concerned should Cowboys fans be about Zach Martin holding out of training camp? It seems like the team always takes care of their best and quietest players, often to the detriment of the cap overall team success, but Martin still has top 10 guard contract. I, you know, I, I mean, if a guy that quiet is suddenly making noise, and it looks like I've got Martin's contract here and I can take a look at it. But uh, um, yeah, if a guy who's usually that quiet is suddenly chattering, I think it's something to be concerned about. Tribnik, in light of the current running back market, is there a path to position-specific guilds or unions? Safeties, running backs, and tight ends all seem to be underpaid. This gets back to the point that I made yesterday. I wrote about it today at PFT, surplus value. The best player at a given position, how much surplus value does he add over and above the average player at the position? Some positions, quarterback, pass rusher, receiver, corner, it's enough that you pay the best players a lot more than the average player gets. At other positions, tight end, running back, safety, kicker, punter, you don't have that same value difference, so you don't have the same price difference. It's that simple. Now, I had an idea earlier today, and it's a thread that I want to pull a little bit when I have a chance to think it through. I'm going to think out loud about it a little bit here. What if the salary cap per team was broken down for each and every team by position? What if instead of a collective overall total salary cap, there was a cap as to what you could pay at each position. I don't think it would really change much because who would determine what the cap figure is? 
And the cap figure for running back, if it's driven by historical percentage that goes to running back, it's going to be lower. It's going to be less. So I don't know that that works either. The problem is you've got all different shapes and sizes of players under one umbrella, under one union, and you're going to have diverging interests. Look, I know the quarterbacks get the lion's share of the salary cap, but they still are worth more than what they get, the best ones. The best ones are worth more to the game collectively than they are to their teams. I think quarterbacks should get paid more by the game. Running backs should get paid more by the game, the league-wide fund. As I think about it more and talk about it more, I keep coming back to the idea that Chris Sims had that we've been thinking about and developing and writing about and talking about. League-wide fund that pays running backs for performance. Playing time, production, touchdowns. If they're the straw that stirs the drink for their team, they're making the league more exciting. Fantasy football, jersey sales, just the overall affection that we have for the players. Maybe there should be a running back series on Netflix or Peacock. We should get Peacock in the mix. But those are the guys that we all clamor to get. First pick in the fantasy drafts is always a running back. The challenge is getting the league and the union to prioritize it, to act on it, to care about it. That's that's the issue. What do the running backs need to do to get people to care? I care, but I got no say in what ultimately happens. Another one from Tribnik. How close are we to calling the Stafford trade a win-win? Well, that's what every trade should be. I think at some point you have to ask yourself, did the Lions get the better of the trade? I thought they would just tolerate Jared Goff for a couple of years and then move on. Well, it turns out they like him. They're going to give him another year at least. The problem is for a team that is struggling to just become a playoff contender, Jared Goff moved them to that level. How much higher can he take them? You know, in every industry, sport or otherwise, you'll have people that are assisting you and your broader effort. Whatever that effort is, whatever the context is, You've got people who can take you to a certain level. And then you have to make the very hard decision as to whether or not that same person or group of people can get you to the higher level. Do you need to make a change to try to get to the next level? At some point, the Lions, I think, will conclude that they need to make a change at quarterback to get to the next level. But for now, to get two first-round picks, a third-round pick, and a quarterback that filled the role for a couple of years and has two years left under his contract, which are very manageable relative to the market, that's a win. And the only thing that that makes it somewhat even is that the Rams won a Super Bowl. I mean, a year from now, we may feel differently about it. As that Super Bowl trophy starts to get deeper and deeper into the rearview mirror, and if you're a non-playoff team for consecutive years, yes, no one can take it away. It's there forever. But where are we now? How do we compare to other teams now? How do we turn this thing around? How far are we away from maybe trying to get the next one, whenever the next one may be? <laughs> oh, man. This is a great question. I can lob 91. What is the strangest thing you have seen in someone else's house? Damn, that is a good question. There isn't any one thing that comes to mind, the strangest thing I've seen in someone else's house. I'm going to be thinking about that one for the rest of the day. I remember when I was a kid and I delivered newspapers of an apartment building on my route. And for whatever reason, this one apartment had a very unique smell that was not pleasant. And I've never smelled it anywhere else. I hope to never smell it again. And if I would ever smell it again, it would take me back to that moment when I would be like collecting. You know, they sent you around. You had to go collect. They didn't invoice you. That was one of the other obligations of having a paper out in the 70s. Go ahead and play the piano music. Oh, wait, we're not on PFT Live. You had to get up early. You had to schlep all the newspapers around, either by foot or on your bike. And then you had to make time every other week to go to all the houses at night. You had to show up on their doorstep and have them pay you. 433. That's what it was for the full week of papers. 433 most of the people on the route got the full week. Some would just get Sunday. It was 186 if you only got Sunday. I can't remember what it was if you only got five days a week. There were, there were multiple options. Five days a week, 
five days plus Saturday, seven days, and just Sunday. It was 186 for Sunday, 433 for the full week. I can't remember the other two, and I'm ashamed to say that I can't remember it. But I went to this guy's apartment. It had that smell. And I remember one time I saw on top of a dresser a can that said bullshit repellent. And I thought for a second, for a second, the smell, is he just spraying that all the time? But uh, I don't know how strange that was, but I remember it 45 years later. So it had an impact on me, but I'm going to be thinking about the strange things I've seen in other people's houses. And uh, maybe I'll have some more for you tomorrow. If I remember. Mr. Palmerson, what can the Giants and Raiders do to ensure that Barkley and Jacobs accept the franchise tag and are full participants throughout the season? Well, they can do two things. They can try two different things. One, they can offer to not tag them next year as part of this one-year deal that they can now do. They can offer that term. That's happened in the past with guys like Lance Briggs and Albert Hainsworth. We won't tag you next year. Now, I think with Briggs and Hainsworth, there was a certain performance level that kicked in before that happened. So there was an incentive to go earn your freedom. So you didn't just shut it down and check the box and save yourself for free agency. So it may take something like that. The other thing you do is just offer them more money. You can pay them more than 10.1 million. You can offer 12, 11, 13, whatever, whatever it takes to get them to show up and commit to one year. That's what they can do. But that's never happened. Unless I'm missing something and there's a chance I am, but I'm, I'd like to think I would remember this. At some time since the franchise tag became a thing 30 plus years ago, I do not believe there has ever been an occasion where a franchise tag player got more money on that one-year franchise tender than what the rules otherwise dictate. The Last Samurai. How close is the NFL to adding an 18th game? Are the players able to get any kind of concession from the league like grass fields or something else for accepting it before the next CBA? What would be a realistic get for the players? I think the NFL wants to get to 18 games. I think part of the PR dilemma is how do you justify this intense focus on health and safety with adding another game? But I, I know from when this all started, when the commissioner was talking about it more than 10 years ago, he wanted 18 games, not 17. 17 was the compromise position. How do you get to 18? The players didn't want to go to 17. And the players were sufficiently up in arms about 17 that – it, it started the pushback against Demora Smith that now has a new executive director ready to take over. What will his position be? Look, you make more money. Everybody makes more money because the players get half of the revenue. But at some point, you don't care if you're the players. You don't care about, you know, because think of it this way. Half the revenue. Let's just call it 50-50. It's not quite 50-50. Let's call it that. Divided among 32 owners. It's a lot more per owner than when you spread it into a salary cap that gets divvied up and teams carry cap space over. They don't spend everything. It's, it's more amorphous to take that extra money and have it impact the take-home pay of a player than it does for an owner. So that's another reason to push back. I still think one of these days there will be 20 regular season games, no preseason games, and then eventually more teams. And maybe there'll be more teams before they get to 20. But at some point, at some point, I believe, maybe not in my lifetime, but I believe there will be 20 regular season games, no preseason games, and there will be more teams, maybe eventually as many as 40 teams in the NFL. Ezra Gonzalez, have you heard anything on the Daniel Hunter situation in Minnesota? I have not. Interesting to see whether or not he shows up for the start of training camp. Let's see what else we have here. I should wrap this up. Getting closer to, oh yeah, I've got uh, radio in Chicago at noon, so I've got to wrap it up by then. What's your favorite game day snack, Spidey 2Y banana? Well, it depends on where I am. If I'm home, it's the freshly baked pepperoni roll from tomorrow's bakery. My wife goes over there and helps out on Sundays, and she brings me home multiple hot, well, still warm, fresh from the oven pepperoni rolls. And uh, that's usually part of my pregame ritual on Sundays when I'm here. When I'm in Connecticut, You know, probably I, what I'll do is at halftime, this isn't very exciting, but at halftime of the first game, the early games, I'll, I'll get a cup of coffee and a couple chocolate chip cookies or lemon bars, depending upon what the selection is that day. So it's not very good. I know that's not very exciting, but uh, I'm not very exciting if you haven't figured that out by now. It's about time for 
me to shut it down. One more question. JC, while you're working, do you listen to music? If so, who? I don't listen to music while I'm working on PFT. What I do is I put on TV or streaming or whatever is kind of background noise. When I'm writing down in the barn, I will listen to music. And it just depends on whatever mood I'm in. I'll hear a song and it makes me think, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up that group on my streaming app and just play all their songs. And I'll go from Johnny Cash. I'll go to the Beatles. I'll go to Bruce Springsteen. Let's do a lot of Bruce Springsteen writing over the years. It's very inspirational because he, he writes in such brilliantly simple terms. I try to do the same thing. I mentioned Johnny Cash. I went through an English beat phase where I listened to them constantly but it's just kind of whatever, like I think of this group, I think of that group, and I'll listen to them for a little while, and then I'll pivot to something else. One song that I heard on the radio coming back from the beach that I hadn't thought of in years, and I've, I've just listened to it once a day, and I'll, I'll eventually fade out from interest in it, but I, I had it on last night. Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. And I was listening to some other Meatloaf, and Meatloaf is better than I remember. Paradise by the Dashboard Light is great. It's almost like a Green Day song where it's, and I know it was prior to Green Day, but it's like one long song with like five or six songs mashed into it. Very well done. Very unique for the time frame because the whole idea was they got to be three minutes long or two minutes long or four minutes long. You know, you never had a song four minutes long. This was like something from a Broadway musical. It just goes on and on and on and on. So anyway, that's it. Let's wrap it up because I have an appointment on the score 670 in Chicago in just a couple of minutes. Of course, it's too late for you to join me there because uh, it will have ended long before you see this. But if you've made it this far, listening or watching, I thank you. And I promise to be back tomorrow as we get closer and closer to the turn of PFT Live. Check us out around the clock at ProFootballTalk.com and have a great Wednesday.